introduced to some themes about worship that we've forgotten, or worse, have watered down in our day and age. Now, in the past few weeks, we've looked at words like offering, and last week that dirty little word, sin. Today, as we go to chapters 8 through 10, we'll, our words for the day will be holiness and priest. The first seven chapters outlined what the Lord had to say about how to approach and interact with him in relationship. But beginning with chapter 8, we move to the inauguration of Aaron and his sons in their roles as the priesthood of Israel. Moses, if you were, to, if you were open up to chapter 8, is presented as the mediator, the priest, if you will, to the priests. He's the one who prepares and consecrates them for their service. And you'll notice if you looked at chapter 8 that there are no sacrifices or offerings required for Moses to install the priesthood. And I would argue that part of the reason for this is that Moses was already ordained into his role long, long, long ago when he encountered that burning bush in the wilderness. We encountered the living presence of God. You'll notice in chapter 8 the, the offerings that are, that are mentioned and the order of them. As the priests are presented before the people, the sin offering comes first. The purification and cleansing of the priests before God. And then the burnt offering, the dedication and offering of the priests their lives to God. But then this fellowship or ordination offering where the priests are literally committing themselves not just to God, but specifically to that priestly calling that God has given them. And in chapter 8, we're told that they go through this again and again. The priests do, Aaron and his sons, for seven days. They're not to leave the tent of meeting for seven days. And chapter 8 turns to chapter 9 as we get to the eighth day, when Aaron and his sons are called forth. And it's important, before we hear scripture this morning, I really want us to appreciate how palpable this moment is. The sense of anticipation and expectancy amongst the people. Have you ever been instructed to build something or been a part of something to build and you do it, but all the whole time you're kind of scratching your head and you really don't understand how it's all going to come together, how it's all supposed to work? The reason why I ask this is because I, this helps us to think about the people of Israel at, up to this moment. What, what this moment means for them. I mean, they've been given detailed instructions. They've built this tabernacle and all of the furniture that's supposed to be in it according to precise specifications. And they no doubt during the work doing this have heard a ton about what the Lord has revealed to Moses about how this is all going to work. But what I don't think we've ever realized is it's not like they could look at the picture on the cover of the box to envision what it would all look like. It's not like they could take a trip down to the local Ikea and check out the assembled floor model. Other than the building of the tabernacle, everything we've looked at in Leviticus so far has been God prescribing to Moses what's going to happen, but nothing has actually happened. Nothing is what that's been outlined. The offering, the sacrifices have taken place yet until this moment. And so there's been this building curiosity, this mystery among the people. You can imagine them all the while, and now this is it, the answer to the question, what's this going to be? What's this going to be like? Many of them constructed the elaborate and ornate clothing worn by the priests, Aaron and his sons. And if you were with us a couple of months back when we looked at Exodus, we talked about those, that clothing. And you can imagine as they constructed it, the question in their minds, what's the significance of all this? And this is the moment when their questions are answered, when it all comes together. And just so this really hits home for us, I want us to again go back briefly to Exodus. What was the whole story about? What drove the event of Exodus? Do you remember? What is it that, that, that 
that motivated that story? Why did God want to liberate his people from slavery in Egypt? What did the Lord our God say again and again to Pharaoh after his repeated command to let my people go? He said, I want my people to be free, set free, so that they may come into the wilderness and worship me. How long has it been? How long has it been? And now finally, they are going to worship the Lord the way that God intended all along. Everything has been built. Everything has been prepared. Everything is ready. This is Israel's first true worship service. And as Ralph Clark comes to read scripture to us, keep that idea, that image in your mind. Scripture reading, Leviticus chapter 9, verse 22, through chapter 10, verse 11. You can find this on page 75 of the Pew Bible. Then Aaron lifted his hand toward the people and blessed them. And having sacrificed the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the fellowship offering, he stepped down. Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. Aaron remained silent. Moses summoned Mishael and Elzaphan, sons of Aaron's uncle Uziel, and said to them, Come here, carry your cousins outside the camp, away from the front of the sanctuary. So they came and carried them, still in their tunics, outside the camp, as Moses ordered. Then Moses said, I'm sorry. Then Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, Do not let your hair become unkempt. And do not tear your clothes, or you will die, and the Lord will be angry with the whole community. But your relatives, all the Israelites, may mourn for those the Lord has destroyed by fire. Do not leave the entrance to the tent of meeting, or you will die, because the Lord's anointing oil is on you. So they did, as Moses said. Then the Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons are not to drink wine or other fermented drink whenever you go into the tent of meeting, or you will die. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come so that you can distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. And so you can teach the Israelites all the decrees the Lord has given them through Moses. This is the word of the Lord. It's the priest's first day on the job. 
And there's a newness at the end of chapter 9 at Israel's first true worship service as the people are being taught. The people are learning how to participate in worship. And they're learning a new rhythm, a new way to live. Aaron lifts his hands as we heard and he blesses the people. And then Moses and Aaron together bless the people invoking the presence of God. And the glory of the Lord appeared to the people as from the clouds. And fire comes and consumes the offerings given to the Lord. And in response, when the people saw this, they shouted for joy and fell face down. It's so important we understand in this moment when everything comes together that their reaction is about more than what they see. Remember that as a people, as a people, they have seen the glory of the Lord before. Breaking the chains of their slavery in Egypt. They've seen the Lord leading them by day and by night through the wilderness. They're not, their reaction here is not as much about what they see, but rather about what it all means. What this signifies, our God is with us. Our God is with us. We in the Christian faith, you know, we often mistakenly refer to the incarnation of God being among us as only happening in Christ. But what we see here in Leviticus is that's not true. The presence of God with us comes to its fullness, its uniqueness in Jesus, but God is incarnate. God is present in this moment with his people. Jesus is the fulfillment of what we see at this first worship service for Israel. God Emmanuel with us. These people in this moment, the Israelites are beholding a new creation. I don't know if you caught when I talked about it, that the Aaron and the priests were set aside for seven days. It wasn't until the eighth day. This is a new creation that's taking place. Something they've never seen before. And just like the, the creation of the universe, it is good. It is very good. They are witnessing the goodness of God's mercy. The goodness of God's peace. The goodness of communion with this God. The grace and goodness of God's presence. And the people in response shout with joy and fall face down in awe and wonder. I wish I could stop there. I set you up if you were, weren't ready for it as Ralph started to read. Because in this incredible moment, if this is very much like Genesis, if this is a new creation, we see that Leviticus 9 turns to chapter 10, as in Genesis 1 and 2 it turns to chapter 3. As Aaron's two oldest sons, Nadab and Abihu, for them their first day on the job becomes their last. These two eldest sons, who you may not remember... Let me remind you, they're mentioned earlier in Exodus. They actually were privileged to go up with Moses up the mountain and were able to see the glory of the Lord when the Ten Commandments were first given. And now they're here. Now they offer what is called in our Bibles unauthorized, but other translations read strange, alien, foreign, adulterous fire. And in a sad, tragic irony, the same fire... The wording is almost the same. The same fire that just consumed the offering of the people. Everything that the people has brought before the Lord in this first worship service. That same fire that proclaimed the grace, the forgiveness, the mercy of the Lord is the same fire that consumes the sin of Aaron's two sons. I don't know about you, but I don't like this story. I don't like this story at all. Here we go again. Right? Here we go again. How many times have we been here in Scripture? Here we go again. We come back to this same place, such great possibility, where we witness the grace and the glory of God. 
And then two people make a mistake. Two priests mess it up. They do something that the Lord hasn't commanded and they die? I don't like this story. And let me go push further. You know, Moses isn't exactly somebody I want around if I go through a loss. These are two brothers talking to each other. In case you forget, these are two brothers talking to each other. And I think we can all relate to Aaron's extended silence as Moses just keeps talking. And his words aren't exactly comforting. Hey, no time to mourn. You know what? The cousins will take out the dead bodies because you can't touch those made unclean by touching the dead. Hey, keep working. You've got a job to do. Thanks, Moses. Thanks. This is one of those moments, I'm going to be completely honest with you, I am the most empathetic when those of you who come to me and say, you know, Pastor, this is why I prefer the New Testament God. <laughs> the New Testament God is different than the Old Testament God. The New Testament God is gracious, but that Old Testament God, he's angry. He's capricious. And then most who come up to me will go on to say, you know, the New Testament God never did stuff like this. Really? Really? Here, jot this down. Later on, I want you to turn and read Acts chapter 5. Go read Acts chapter 5 and read about a bizarre story, a disturbing story of a couple named Ananias and Sapphira who hold back. They lie. And then they're struck dead. Maybe that belongs in the Old Testament. Well... Some of us might say, well, 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 but see, that's God, though. You see, that's God, and that's why I like Jesus, as if we could separate God from Jesus. <laughs> no, no, but let's go with this. You know, that's why I like Jesus. Jesus, you know, Jesus never did stuff like this. Really? Really? Okay, you got Acts chapter 5. Write this one down, too. Later on today, go read Luke chapter 12 and read where Jesus specifically says he came to bring fire and he wishes it would come sooner rather than later to cover the earth. I don't think I've read that passage before, Pastor. It's there, <laughs> Luke chapter 12. And then if that's not good enough, go to Matthew. Okay, go to Matthew, and you remember this story. All of us will remember this story. When Jesus tells a man to follow him, and in response, the man says, uh, my father just died. And you remember what Jesus says, right? Jesus says, oh, well, by all means, go and take care of that first. Go and that, that, you, that, you go take care of that. No. Jesus turns and says, let the dead bury the dead. Follow me. If you're with me right now, you're a little uncomfortable. Because we want to escape and say, well, we're going to get out of the Old Testament and go to the New. But we're not finding a place to... To hide in the New Testament. And then we say, well, we just won't deal with God. We'll go to Jesus. He's warm and cuddly. And Jesus isn't warm and cuddly anymore. And what this all means, at least to me, is, is our God capricious? Have we been blinded? Have we been looking the other way? Did we get it wrong? Is our God, the God that we worship, the God that we've been singing to, that we came here for, is our God capricious? Or is, it some, is our God something else entirely? Listen. Again, to what Moses is trying to say to Aaron afterwards. If we can get past our initial frustration that he talks at all. Listen to what he's trying to say to Aaron. He says, this is what the Lord meant when he said, I will show myself holy and I will be glorified among the people. Beloved, we worship a holy God. That's what Moses is trying to say. But today what we're wrestling with is what does holiness mean? What does holiness mean? 
And the first place we need to start that we see here, but we see elsewhere in Scripture, is that the holiness of God, what the Lord does here, is not just a posture or an attitude. It's not like God woke up and said, you know, I think I'm feeling a little holy today, so I'm going to strike somebody down. And, and it's, I'm, I'm, it's a little tongue-in-cheek there, but we often throw the word holiness, the idea of holiness around as a disposition. We often talk about it as, uh, in this way as being an attitude or a posture. We talk about someone being holier than thou to describe someone who's acting or changing who they are. But what we need to see here is that holiness, and what Moses is trying to communicate, holiness for God is not a posture or an attitude. Holiness is the essence of who God is. God is holy other, distinct in being perfect, unique in being good, all good. And that's why you see this redundancy in Exodus and Leviticus. It gets kind of, you know, we, our mind starts to freeze after a while. There's this redundancy spelling out all these different ways we're to approach God, this God who is not like us, whose ways are not our ways, whose manner is not our manner, whose thoughts are not our thoughts. In many ways, this God is completely foreign to us. So totally different than whatever we could expect, it conceive or imagine. And this is huge because as much as God makes himself approachable, God is not compromised or diluted by our limitations or our lack of perception. If God was compromised or diluted by those things, then God would be less than what he is and he wouldn't be God. I've gone all existential on you now, and if you're kind of going, oh, my head really hurts, let's just try to take this in a different direction. I want you to think about going to the zoo. I assume all of us have gone, I know, total where did that come from? I, I hope all of us have gone to the zoo at some point in our lives. And if you're like me, if you've gone to the zoo, what I go to the zoo to see are the lions. And I hope that if you've gone to the zoo and like me, you like to go to see the lions, that someone, before you got there, talked to you about interacting with the lions. And if you're like me, and this is, I'm not kidding, every time I go, despite the fact that most of us were probably talked to about how to interact with a lion, you go to the zoo and there's always that one guy. There's always that one guy who, despite all the instructions, all the particulars about lions, what they're like, how they respond, how they're to be approached, what not to do, what's acceptable to do, there's always that one guy who thinks it's funny to go to the cage and mess around with the lion, to treat it like an ordinary house cat. Here, kitty, kitty. Or to mock the threat of its majesty because it's behind bars. I mean, I've gone sometimes, and I've even seen people, some people even stick their hands through the cage, if it's a cage, to get a better shot with their camera. Now, let's picture we're there. Let's picture that happens. And if in that moment, all of a sudden, that lion suddenly ripped that person's arm off or suddenly charged at the cage, I don't think any of us would step back and go, you know, that lion is being very capricious right now. That lion is just being so... So disrespectful, so angry. No, I think we would all step back and we'd say, that lion is just being a lion. That lion is just doing what lions do. That is a lion. That's what, that, that's what happens. Now, God's not a lion, unless you're C.S. Lewis, but good, that one went better this service. All right. Woo. It's going to be a good day. Okay, all right. Now, God's not a lion. But this simple analogy helps us to understand that our God's not being reactionary here. 
The Lord is simply being who he is. When we say that God our Father is holy, we are saying that God our Father is perfect and pure in his essence, in his being. And for someone to enter the presence of this God and not respect who God is, when the parameters have been clearly set, when the boundary lines have been clearly established, what takes place is not a capricious punishment as much as it is what's bound to happen what will inevitably happen when that which is perfect, in fact so much greater, encounters something imperfect, so much lesser than? Like fire that comes in contact with gasoline or potassium with water. The fiery presence, the holiness that is the essence of God overtakes the imperfection of sin. That which is lesser is consumed by that which is greater. Now, I can tell for some of you, I still, you're still not there. So let's, again, think about the holiness of God in yet another way. Interesting thing. I find that inside the church and outside the church, when you talk about God generally, you can get people pretty fired up, no pun intended, um, about justice. If people are even willing to acknowledge that God might exist at all, the place where they'll get pretty hot is talking about justice. We want justice. We point to, we question, we seek the justice of God. For many of us, our hang-up on even believing in this God is justice. It doesn't take much, in the church or outside the church, for us to invoke, to want to see this God who takes people out. Who makes people pay for what they've done. The disciples even had that moment. Do you remember when they were with Jesus? They were walking through a village and the village basically rejected them and they got excited. They're like, is this it, Lord? Should we call down the fire? Should we bring down the thunder? Should we take them out? And Jesus says, no, no. We, we, we want God to be holy. We want God to be just, except when we don't want God to be holy. I mean, when it comes to ourselves, when it comes to my standards, when it comes to the way that I want it, when it comes to the way that I think it ought to be, I don't want God to be holy. I want God to be tolerant. I want God to be friendly. Frankly, I want God to mind his own business, if you really want to know the truth. And this gets to the heart of it, doesn't it? That's not who God is. And therefore, that's not how this God works. God is holy all the time, not just when it's convenient or appealing for us. I mean, we in our own sinfulness and our own brokenness, this is the tragedy of the human condition. In our own sinfulness, our own brokenness, we can often be less than we are. We are often less than we are. But God cannot be less than who he is. He is perfect. He is pure. He is good all the time. Another way to understand this idea of holiness, which will also kind of bring it together for us, is that God's grace and God's judgment are two sides of the same coin. They're two sides of the same coin of holiness. God's grace and God's judgment are two sides of the same coin. And that's why Moses, after this horrible incident takes place, repeatedly turns to Aaron and, and his sons, his remaining sons, and says, Look, approach God in the way that I'm telling you. As I was commanded or you will die. And it's not because the Lord is in the business of striking people down, but because this is a holy God. What Moses is trying to say to Aaron and his remaining sons is that God's holiness is revealed one way or another. God's holiness is either revealed by grace or it's revealed by judgment. Who God is, the holiness of God is revealed by grace. That's God's primary mode of 
He, he seeks to initiate relationship with us, to approach us. God reveals his holiness by coming into our lives and into our world. And that grace of the holiness of God comes into our lives by responding, by yielding to that invitation that God gives us, by respecting the boundaries, by obeying the means of approach. Otherwise, we encounter the holiness of God through his judgment. If you seek to approach this God on any other terms than God's, you will encounter the holiness of God and you will be consumed. You will experience the living God, what God is, who God is, but you will not survive. Remember that the next time you sing, our God is a consuming fire. Do you really get it? Do we really get it? The only way we can be in relationship with this God is by God's initiative and according to his terms. Contrary to what Frank Sinatra is saying, it's not my way or your way, it's his way. We have to let God be God. And yet it's fascinating. If you do a little study on Leviticus 10, it is fascinating on your own how Jewish and Christian scholars alike work so hard with this passage to try to come up with specific reasons why this happened. To, to argue specific reasons to justify the deaths of Nadab and Abihu. And I want you to think about that for a moment. It's not just scholars. We do this too as lay people, okay? What, what is really behind our effort to try to come up with specific reasons why this happened is it's, what's behind this is our desire to make God acceptable. If I, I, I can accept this God if I can come up with a good reason, a logical explanation, a compelling answer as to why what God did fits with what they did. But beloved, your Bible's open, Leviticus chapter 10, there's none of that here. There's no explanation, there's no rationalization, there's no justification. What exactly did Nadab and Abihu do wrong? We don't know. We don't know exactly. All we know is that Nadab and Abihu approached the Lord in a manner different from what he prescribed. God gave explicit instructions for the behavior of the priests, and these two violated those instructions knowingly. Their strange fire, in other words, was worshiping and approaching the Lord their way. How they wanted. How they preferred. Aaron's sons were worshiping themselves. And beloved, you heard me say it before, but this is, it's right here. I can't go past this. When we focus primarily on our preferences, our desires, what we want rather than what God wants, rather than what God offers us, we are making strange fire. We are worshiping ourselves. And worship is not what we make God into. Worship is not about how we attempt to make God acceptable or seeker-sensitive. Worship is not about doing it our way. Worship is about doing it God's way. Engaging God our Father in relationship as he is. Do you remember the name of God? Do you remember the name that Moses, when he asks what God says, it's Yahweh, right? Do you remember what that name means? I am who I am. I will be who I will be. We cannot manipulate, we cannot redefine the parameters of our relationship with God. The Lord is not confined to our sensibilities. There is no box that we can make this God fit into. And beloved, this is so significant in terms of our worship, the li our life as worship. Because what this means is, good intentions are no substitute for obedience. 
What we intend to do with this God doesn't get you anywhere. What the Lord wants, what he repeats over and over again in the Bible, is in response to his gracious initiative, in response to encountering his holiness, he wants our obedience. He wants our complete dependency upon him. Not your intentions. Not your, well, when I can fit you in. Not, well, that doesn't really work for me. He wants our total dependency upon him. And let me go further with this. Our enthusiasm for the Lord is no substitute for our discipline in being in relationship with this God. And we got a lot of enthusiasm in the church. And a lot of it's good enthusiasms and a lot of it's bad enthusiasm. You could be all wild and crazy about the Lord. You could be all wild and crazy about the Lord. But if you're not disciplined, if you're not thoughtful, if you're not reflective, if you're not careful in approaching this God, you are substituting the experience, the, the rush, the spiritual goosebumps for the full relationship. And the truth is, you're violating this relationship because you're just using God to make yourself feel better. And brothers and sisters, trust me, the church is rampant with people who are just using God to make themselves feel better. God is not, as it is often preached these days and taught, God is not our personal consultant. God is not our cheerleader. God is not our life coach. God is, as the scriptures proclaim again and again and again, our Lord and Savior. I know this is hitting hard for some of us, but God is not present to build our self-esteem. God, our Father's desire, his one desire is to save our lives. God, our King's singular intent is to save the world. He wants our obedience, he wants our dependence upon him because it is a matter of life and death. How we worship God, have you ever thought of it like that? How we worship God, how we engage each other, this world in response to this God is the difference between life and death. Do we get this? Do we get this? Leviticus opens our eyes to this because worship in Israel, as we've seen already, is a bloody, costly thing. Sin leads to death. Israel couldn't live in community with God without a clear, violent, and ever-present reminder of the cost of their sins, of their separation, of their independence from God. And we might be frightened by all the blood and the gore, but we can't miss the point of it all. That this was the best thing going. There was no better way of worship in the world because this is where God dwelled with Israel and with no one else. And so they had the continued sacrifice. They had the blood of bull and goats. They had the pillar of fire and of smoke. And my brothers and sisters in Christ, we have the cross. It's so pretty. Do we get the scandal of the cross? This is a great moment to ask that question. Do we get the scandal of the cross? I mean, just to bring this home for you, why is it that so many of us have no problem with that? No problem with the cross. We sing about it. We, we pray it. We wear crosses on our, on our necks. We, some of us have elaborate pictures in our homes of crosses. We have no problem whatsoever with the cross. But this story horrifies us. This story turns us off. I mean, do you notice in this that the response of Aaron and the rest of the community is so different from our own, our own initial gut reaction? Their collective response is not, how could God do this? How dare he? No, their response 
is a more profound realization of the grace displayed by God at the end of chapter 9. Beloved, what I'm trying to say is that this story should draw us also to our knees as, that we, as we realize that it is only by God's grace that we're not all dead already. God is not required to forgive us. It's not like there's some sort of mechanical exchange where if we crack the code or follow the right instructions, then God has to cleanse, fix, or embrace us. God our Father offers. God our Father promises to redeem, and then we respond to that offer, to that promise. Beloved, look at the cross. Think about the scandal of the cross in light of Leviticus 10. Because here in Leviticus 10, God consumes life because of sin. But in the end, on the cross, it will be this same God who one day, through the life of his son, will allow his life to be consumed by sin. In the person of Jesus Christ, on the cross, God will be burned by his own fire. God will be cursed and adulterated by his own judgment. Beloved, the very fact that we're able to approach this God who is like this should shock and awe us. It ought to bring us to our knees to think of a God who will allow himself to be killed, let alone to be struck down, snuffed out by the very thing that he cannot be near. Sin, imperfection, evil. Beloved, can we let God be God? Can we afford to not let God be God? We are given an invitation, a way into God's presence and what's required of us, what worship fundamentally is, what worship fundamentally is, is responding to this God, being responsive to the initiative and character of this God, to embrace the Lord as he is and not to make him into something that he is not. Worship is to reflect the true image of God, not just by what we say, but more significantly by what we do, by respecting, listening, paying attention, following and engaging this God as the way, the truth and the life. In other words, we need to live into our calling as priests. Did you know you were a priest? You're a priest. It's not just pastors. You're a priest. I'm a priest. We're all priests. When we worship the Lord our God as he is, when we respond with our lives to this God who initiates with us, we don't just encounter God's holiness. That is the thing that brings us to our knees. We don't just encounter the holiness of God. That's what's incredible about this relationship. When we enter into God as he truly is, we are made holy by this God. We are changed in this encounter. We, our relationship is transformed. We become holy. What? We become holy, purified, cleansed, forgiven. We become holy, and so we are to be holy. And being holy is not just being set apart by God. It's being set apart for God as priests, as the priesthood of all believers. In Christ, our Father calls each of us to be a priest, to glorify him through the worship of our lives. In other words, so you get this, we have been set apart so as to reflect in this hurting world in which we live, the one who saves us, the one who continues to redeem and deliver us, the one who continues to reconcile us. Our worship of God, when it is in the Spirit, and when it is in the truth of his word, our worship of God leads us beyond ourselves. We are anemic as the church right now. We have worship wars. Those two words don't belong together. We still have them. 
We still have across the generations. Each generation, it just it's another battle line that's drawn. We're fighting over song styles, sermon length, robes, sandals, ties, Babies crying in church. Kids should be separated from church. What should the church look like on the inside? Is the cross big enough? Should Jesus be on the cross? You name it. We got all kinds of stuff we're fighting about. And fundamentally what that means is we're making strange fire. Please hear that. Because you want to know how our worship is true. You want to know how our worship is focused on Christ. I'll say it again. Our worship of God when it is in the spirit and it is in the truth of God's word leads us beyond ourselves. It broadens our vision. It opens our minds. It extends the capacity of our hearts and electrifies our sensitivity to the people and world around us, specifically who do not know and have not heard the truth of the gospel, the love of this God. If we're all priests, what's the role of a priest? Leviticus spells it out. The role of a priest was to facilitate the worship of the Lord by making offerings on behalf of the people. Making the sacrifices, standing before God's presence and representing the people and returning to the people to offer assurance that God had heard their prayers. That God had forgiven their sin. That God had cleansed their lives. Beloved, we have been set apart so that we can mediate Jesus Christ, his covenant and his kingdom to the world. We are the body of Christ. Through the authority of God's word and the power of his Holy Spirit, we have been equipped to minister to those who are hurting, all who are hurting. To those who are deceived by sin, to those who, have, who feel rejected, to those who feel irrelevant, or worse, to those who believe they are condemned. As priests, we're not holier than thou. And that's our rap as the church. We think we're holier than thou, but if we truly understand what it means to be priests, we're not holier than thou. We are not and we do not have to be perfect people. We don't have to live by a list of religious rules and traditions. We, to be a priest, to be holy as God is holy, is to worship and live as redeemed people. A person whose conscience is clear before God and yet a person who knows their human frailty because they see themselves with their open eyes. A priest who reveals and offers, who points and prays and embodies the promise of God's mercy, the promise of God's forgiveness, the promise of God's grace, hope, peace and presence through Jesus Christ to the world. We are priests and the world is waiting. Notice also here, so easy to just go right by this. Notice this. This just brings it home yet again. The priests lived off the offerings of the people. The priests lived off of the salvation of the people. Their edification came as a result of their work unto the Lord. They didn't get their cut. They didn't get their peace. They didn't get their satisfaction first. The blessing and provision of worship came through their leading the work of worship. Beloved, our work, our worship as the priesthood of believers is not primarily for our own edification. It is first and foremost for interceding for others. And what that fundamentally means to rock your world and mine is it's not about your preference. It's not about what you want. It's about what he needs. It's about what she needs. And if that baby's crying in the service and it's making you hard to hear... That person needs to be here right now. Deal with it. And if that song isn't playing on the fish and you don't know the words, sing it anyway. Because for somebody else, that's bringing them into a living encounter with God. 
And if you come up and we ran out of wine and it's only juice and you can't have juice because it's communion and it's got to be wine, take the juice. And if you sit down next to somebody who doesn't smell as good as you, who's talking to themselves, who you're not sure if they're suddenly going to lose it at some moment, be at peace. You're not alone in this sanctuary. You can handle it. And trust that that person's wondering why they got to sit next to you who smells so nice, who's got it all together. The heart of worship is not doing things our way so that we can get what we want. It's doing things God's way so that we can come alongside others and let God give them what they need. That's what it means to be priests. So I ask you, you, and you, and you, and you, and you, where are you being called as a priest? Where's your priesthood? Is it on the street? Is it in your office at work? Is it in your neighborhood? Is it through that meal that you only you provide? Is it through those notes that only you seem to write and send to people? How's that five-fold ministry coming along in your life? Did you just take the test, remember the sermon series, and kind of put it on the shelf? Or do you understand that what we just looked at, that five-fold ministry, is in essence the priestly clothes that God puts on us so that we can live out of our identity, live out of our authority as covenant and kingdom people? Where's your priesthood? Where together are we breathing out the sweet aroma of the kingdom? Our sacrifices, our worship is pleasing to the Lord when there's a sweet aroma. If the church stinks, then we're breathing out something that's not of God. Where's the sweet aroma of the kingdom? Where are we embodying the love of Christ? How can we together as grace harvest the fruit of the Spirit? We don't got to figure out what crops to plant. The Lord takes care of that. How can we harvest the fruit of the Spirit? How can we extend the boundaries of peace, hope, and love in the neighborhood that surrounds us? These are the questions. This is what worship is about. These are the things we need to be talking about, praying about, celebrating, shouting for joy and falling on our knees. So beloved, let's walk and work in the blood of the Lamb and the power of the cross. Let us each day offer our lives up in worship knowing that God our Father has made us His and accepts us wholly as His. Let us confess our sin before Him and to each other, acknowledging the inadequacy of our best efforts. And then let us be ordained anew as priests. Let us think of the oil flowing over Aaron's head as the Holy Spirit filling us, enabling us to live, love, and serve as mediators, as representatives of God's truth and grace. Let us live on God's word together. Let us listen to his voice. Let us walk in the knowledge of his redeeming love. Let us serve according to his will. And may that love and that truth overflow from our hearts and our body and spread to the world around us. May God be glorified. May the fire of the Lord burst forth and consume the offering of our lives. And let all the people shout. All the people shout as they are overcome, as they see God our Father present in their midst, as they experience the power and authority of the kingdom in their midst. This is worship. This is holiness. This is the priesthood. Beloved, let's be the church. Amen. Amen. Amen.